All right, well, we finished the book of Genesis uh, going into Thanksgiving. Uh, we decided to take just a couple of weeks. This week and next week, we're going to do Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And then starting in January, we'll hit the book of Exodus, uh, which is fun. But uh, uh, we're going to be hitting these Psalms uh, typically... Uh, for instance, the last time I taught through the Old Testament, I did about five psalms a night because, you know, there's 150 psalms, and if you do one a week, it's three years in the psalms. And So this time I decided I still want to make sure that we use the psalms, but maybe we'll sprinkle them throughout to kind of pick up some of the, the slack there, and then we'll still have to do a good portion of time. Uh, the other thing I did weird the last time I taught the psalms is I divided them by authors, and so some were anonymous, some were written by David, some by Solomon, some by uh, He-Man, if you can believe that. Um, I didn't make that up. <laughs> some by uh, Korah and Asaph, and anyway, and so I took them like that and said, here's all the Psalms of David, and taught them that way, and then all the Psalms. And that was fun too, but this time we're just going to start in verse, or verse 1, yes, chapter 1, Psalm 1, however you want to look at it. Uh, but Psalm 1 for me is uh, a pretty special psalm. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that, but it uh, it really starts early on in my ministry when um, when Pastor Ron, our founding pastor, left. Uh, it was kind of uh, in a hurry, I guess would be the way to say that. And um, so in that short interim period there, myself and uh, Pastor Tim Little uh, were ministering as best we knew how. Uh, then through that, uh, we built an elders board, a board of directors, uh, and then that group came together and asked me to be the senior pastor going forward, um, which scared me silly. <laughs> um, and so several things went into that. The first thing was that I was afraid to leave the house. Um, it was really frightening for me to go out in public and realize a lot of people know me, but I don't know them. And so you have a church at, you know, a couple hundred people at that time, and I would go out in the community, and uh, one particular instance, I decided it's late enough at night, it's okay for me to go out. So I went out to Sherry's to get pie, and, and this gal is the waitress, and she's just talking to me, and she's being so nice. So of course, what do I assume? She's flirting with me. So I start taking my ring and tapping it on the counter, just subtly saying, hey, married guy here, knock it off, to which she responds, you don't know who I am, do you? <laughs> no? Oh, well, I've gone to your church for years. And it was just kind of moments like that that just instilled panic in me. Uh, there were some other things uh, just on the organizational side that I had no idea what to do. Um, there was the daunting task of of moving to this idea of teaching every week for the next, you know, 50, 60 years, however long I'll be here, whatever that might be. All of those things just kind of built up on me. And so uh, I escaped to Oregon. <laughs> I took a week and just said, I just need to go <clears throat> pray. <laughs> and so I went to Oregon and I was going to uh, a church in Oregon there, uh, John Corson's church. And my, I had this great idea John Corson has this amazing church. I loved listening to him preach. It was this wonderful thing. So I was going to go to Oregon. I was going to spend a week there and see how John Corson did ministry. And when I got there, they said, oh, John's not here. He's in Mexico. <laughs> so, uh, but what I quickly realized is they really weren't doing anything 
particularly amazing. They were just doing the same old stuff as everybody else, uh, but the Spirit was just moving in their midst. And so uh, at that point, I just decided I just really needed to pray. I just needed to be in prayer. And so I had this whole week to pray. And so I began the process of reading, number one, a bunch of books about the Holy Spirit, um, but also uh, praying through the Psalms. And so I would take a little bit of time every day and I would pray through the Psalms one by one. And I would insert my name in there where it seemed appropriate, but I wasn't just reading them uh, to study them. I was literally turning them into prayers. And so uh, for me, it was very uh, helpful to format my prayers like the Word of God. Well, that kind of stuck with me going through in ministry over the years. And so I would find myself from time to time uh, just being in, in a tough spot and just struggling in different ways, and I would begin to pray through the Psalms again. I would kind of start that process back up. Um, however, a number of years ago, uh, I got into somewhat of a funk, is what I'm going to call it. Uh, maybe a downward spiral, some might call it depression, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I had basically convinced myself I was bad at everything. And that I was uh, no good for this church, I was no good for the kingdom, I was a terrible preacher. Uh, It's really easy to convince yourself of those things. All you have to do is listen to one of your sermons one time and you're there, you're convinced, it's not that hard and and you start to wonder, why are these people being so nice to me? And why do they keep allowing me to show up? Is there just nobody else? What's going on? And so one particular day I was just, um, I was just at the end of it. I was just at the end of my rope. I had nothing left in the tank. I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically, however you want to look at it, spiritually. And uh, so what I would often do on Wednesdays anyway is I would just walk the property. And usually I would listen to what it was I was supposed to preach that night. I would just listen to that passage over and over again uh, just to have it in my, in my heart and in my mind. But that particular day, uh, I couldn't even focus on the passage. And just out of the blue, I decided I was going to go back to the Psalms because that's my safety zone. That's where I go back to. That's where I can relate to what David is saying and the other authors. I can kind of catch some of those themes there. Um, and, but for whatever reason, as I was listening to it, I decided to listen to the message version of the Bible. I had never read the message version of the Bible. I had heard about it. Um, uh, in fact, I, I, uh, I don't know that I would ever teach from the message version of the Bible. However, I was fascinated by the story of how it came about. Uh, The guy uh, that wrote it, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, was a Sunday school teacher, and he initially started with, he would come to his Sunday school class full of adults, you know, it was an adult Sunday school class, but he would read the passage in King James, and people would look at him like, huh? And so he just got in the habit of every week, he knew his his, uh, original languages, and he would translate it, but he would try to translate it into the simplest form possible so that even adults could understand it. That's kind of the way that worked out. And so I was always fascinated with the idea, but I just never was really, you know, going to study from it. But for whatever reason that day, uh, I bring it up on my phone, I put in the headphones, and I start doing my laps around the property uh, and uh, can't even venture a prayer at this point. I'm just, there's just nothing left in the tank. And as soon as it starts, this is what it sounds like in the message. How well God must like you. Could you imagine being at the very end of your rope, feeling completely useless to God and to his kingdom? And then those words come into your ears, how well God must like you. 
I mean, it was like uh, a lightning bolt from heaven. It was like a, a specific message just for me in that moment. Uh, as it goes on, it, it gets kind of silly. <laughs> uh, for instance, it says, how well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. And I thought to myself, that's true. I don't even know where Sin Saloon is, but I don't hang out there. You don't slink along dead-end road. Also true. <laughs> you don't go to Smart Mouth College. Well, I didn't go to college for that, but I am pretty good at it. But <laughs> Instead, you thrill to God's Word. You chew on Scripture day and night. You're a tree replanted in Eden bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. You're not at all like the wicked, who are mere wind-blown dust, without defense in court, unfit company for innocent people. God charts the road you take. The road they take is skid row. And I admit it's a goofy translation, but man, it goofed me right back into the kingdom. <laughs> uh, I'm not an emotional type typically. Uh, I have emotions. I just don't have any need of them, so I store them away somewhere. Uh, but I honestly, I'm walking laps around the property just in tears. And it was uh, probably, my wife tells me this, it was probably actually just a good emotional release to cry. She tells me that all the time, like, you'll feel better if you cry. I'm like, I mean, it makes sense, like... <laughs> You cry when you're hurt, not when you want to feel better, right? Uh, but anyway, um, so I, I'm not sure, uh, again, that I would, would suggest that, but I just know in that moment, God used Psalm 1 in the Message Bible, uh, I would say, to save my ministry, uh, maybe to save my faith, and who knows, maybe to save my life. And so I was there just uh, emotionally just soaking it in. I can't even tell you how many times I listened to this one dumb psalm. I don't know if Psalm 2 is any good in the message. It may not be. But Psalm 1 was just what I needed that particular day. And so when uh, I teach Psalm 1, uh, it's exciting to me uh, because I don't know that there might be somebody else listening either in here or in the overflow or online who might be at the end of the rope in their faith. And if you take the time to let the words here in this psalm speak to you, I think it will it'll guide you. It'll help you understand how God views you. But I also think it'll give you a roadmap if you find yourself kind of off the path. I don't know that I was off the path as much as I was just trampled on the path. But it certainly gave me a reminder of some of the things that I was doing that were an encouragement. And then to see that from God's perspective is pretty powerful. Uh, in my introduction here in my Bible, in this description of how the Psalms work. Uh, I love the way it says this here. Uh, it says, the theology of the Psalter is the conviction that the gravitational center of life, but also of history and the whole creation is God. That's that gravitational center of everything. And the Psalms kind of turn your heart and your mind back to God. Uh, it's sometimes easy, even as a good student of the Word, uh, to start going through 
the books of the Bible and thinking only about how it applies to you. And I'm fine with it. I think you should always apply the word to your life. But I don't think you're applying it rightly if you can't grasp that every single passage is about God and it's by God. That at the very heart of it all, and I think that's one of the mistakes we sometimes make in Christianity, uh, we're looking at the Bible as a self-help book. How is this book going to make my life better? Well, the truth is, Being related to God is just better, regardless of what happens in your life. Being connected to the God, the creator of everything, is just better than anything else in your life. And the Word should continually draw you back to that. And we're going to look at it again. I'm going to break it down. Well, let me read it through all the way once in the New American Standard. The not-so-silly Bible. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That ending section there before we come to the front part is important. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, we would look at that and think of it in terms of the Lord knows where I've been, where I'm going. He knows those things. Uh, But I would think of it just slightly different. If I'm looking for direction somewhere, I'm going to ask somebody who knows the way. God knows the way of the righteous. And that's how I would kind of like to look at this passage. Just some very, very simple but meaningful ways for us to live as the blessed man, the blessed woman, the righteous one. Just some very simple things in here. And you'll note that all of those things are connected to the person and work of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God directed towards us. How blessed, verse 1, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Uh, That first word there, blessed or blessed, uh, is a word that is uber-spiritual, And we kind of think of it in uber-spiritual terms. Uh, Quite simply, it's it's the man who has directionally been made happy. There's just a simpleness to it. And I think it's uh, interesting because when most of the time we think about the word happy, we think about, hey, the Broncos won the Super Bowl. I'm happy. Haven't been happy in a few years, but I'm happy, right? 
hey, I, I hit the lottery, I'm happy. But none of those things are really the things here used to describe the blessed ones, the blessed people, the blessed man, the happy man. Instead, it describes first the things that the blessed man doesn't do, and then the singular thing that the blessed man does do. Here are the things the blessed man does not do. Number one, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Number two, he does not stand in the path of sinners. And number three, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Walk, stand, sit. There's a progression there from walking to standing still to sitting. And that progression, I think, somewhat describes the downward spiral that happens in the Christian's life when they begin to pursue sinful things. That first one, they don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. They don't walk in it. I almost envision it like this. Uh, If you want to envision this whole scene, uh, imagine that somebody wicked is walking by. And you start walking towards them. And then you stand in their way. But before long, you're sitting in their seat. You see that progression there. This walking in the counsel of the wicked. Of course, a piece of that is just, where do you find your advice? Where do you find your guidance? I think we have a tendency to sometimes look beyond God's word for guidance. Now, look, if you want to know how to better take care of your teeth, it's okay to ask a dentist. I am fully convinced that big dentist is out to cause cavities, not help them, but that's just my own personal opinion. Don't get me started. She will tell you it's annoying when I start talking about it. But there's, I'm not saying we deny experts their area of expertise. Uh, if I want to build a house, I'm not necessarily going to look for the book of house building in, the, in my Bible. That's not what it's talking about. But there's that general nature of where I find guidance in my life is not from wicked people. Because wicked people give wicked guidance and they lead you into wicked activity. That's what happens. And so if you're trying to figure out your future and you call, what was it, uh, Dionne Warwick's psychic helpline, <laughs> wicked people give wicked advice. That's an over-exaggeration, right? Oh, is it Christian who finds every non-Christian self-help book in the world to be the answer to all of their problems? but just doesn't have time to read their Bible today. Careful what we say, right? Where do we find our counsel? We find our counsel not from the wicked, but from the godly. We should be in the habit of asking other believers, of pursuing God's Word, of reading from some of the great believers throughout history, how it is we can approach life. There's great value in that. One of the uh, books that is not on my to-read list, 
And one of the things I'm not interested in reading is actually by C.S. Lewis. He calls it the dark night of the soul. He's not the only one. Martin Luther wrote about the dark night of the soul. He said it in German, so it sounds a little different. Mother Teresa wrote about the dark night of the soul. There's that connection there, right? That all kinds of Christians have had these difficult struggles throughout history. But to see where God has brought them back, to see how God has spoken to them in the midst of their darkness. I'm afraid to read those things because I don't want to get back into the darkness, right? Like, don't tell me about your darkness. I'm just trying to hang out in my darkness right now. I'm trying to get through mine. But someday when I'm feeling better, when I'm ready to hear from these great people of the faith, another just powerful thing. You know, we do this in counseling sometimes. If somebody comes to me with a spiritual problem and I know somebody else that's already had that spiritual problem who came through it as a believer, go talk to that guy. Started out early in my ministry. I was a youth pastor. Uh, At the time that I started out in youth ministry, I had zero kids. Had a dad come to me one time and says, I'm having trouble figuring out what to do with my teenage son. Okay. Why don't you find somebody whose teenage son you think is godly and ask them how they raise their kid? I can't give you parental advice. I just was, I had no experience in it. I could give him some generic things. I could draw some scriptural things out, and that's fine to do that. But how much more powerful from the parent who had struggles with their teenager, but they came through it. That God brought them through it. That person, man. That's the counsel we want, not the counsel of the wicked. There's some power in this understanding of who you get advice from. Nor stand in the path of sinners. That to me just sounds like you're begging to be in the place of sinful people. Stand in the path of sinners. Now, I want to be clear about this. Jesus spent time with sinners, right? But he did it not so he could become like them, so that they could be with him, so they could become like him. That goes to the motive. I think sometimes we stand in the path of sinners or sinful things so that we can experience it without saying it's my sin. You see what I mean there? Uh, I'll give you some Maybe this will be weird examples, but I don't smoke anymore. I've never smoked, actually, but I'm just, not my examples, just generic examples. I don't smoke anymore, but I sure like to stand next to the smokers at break time. But I've quit smoking. You know what I mean? It's like we're going to stand in the path of sin. I just want to be around it again. I I don't like pornography. I'm going to start with a PG-13 movie and then maybe an R movie. And maybe I'm going to look for an R movie that I know has some stuff in it that I'm not supposed to watch. But it's not like it was. It's just like I I'm not guilty of their sin. I'm just watching them sin. 
just kind of standing in the path of their sin. I, I get to experience it without getting dirty is what it feels like, right? I don't think it really works that way. I think if you're making a heart determination to be involved in any way in sinful things for the purpose of yourself, that in itself is sin. And there's a danger in that it draws you into it. Now again, there's a complete difference from saying, I want to minister to those in sin. We should be doing those things. I remember the story, I read the story, there's a guy that wrote a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. It's evangelism. One thing you can't do in heaven. Evangelism, right? He got fired from his church because in his town, there was an area of the town that was just full of prostitutes. And so he just said, who's sharing the gospel with prostitutes? So as a pastor, he decided his ministry was going to be to share the gospel with prostitutes. How bad does it look when you're driving down the road and you see your pastor talking to a prostitute on the side of the road? Looks pretty bad, right? Bad enough to get a guy fired, I'll tell you that right now. But who's going to witness to the prostitutes? I'm not saying you can't minister like Jesus did, who ate with sinners, right? But I am saying that you have to check the motives behind your heart. I don't think all of us have been called to the ministry to prostitutes. I think we have to be careful where it is we go. And particularly that we would check our motives that we not be drawn first by walking towards sin, then by in being in the presence of sin, and before long you get comfortable and you sit down in the seat of sinners. Now that's what catches me about this next one. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Who sits in a scoffer's seat? Scoffers. You're not borrowing this guy's chair. It just became your chair. The one who sits in the seat of a scoffer is the scoffer. It's this progression, this downward spiral that we see. I'm just walking amongst the counsel of the wicked. And now I'm standing in the presence of their sin. And now I've made myself comfortable amongst the scoffers. I have to watch myself in this because I have the unspiritual gift of sarcasm. And so scoffing is something I've developed as a bit of a talent. What's interesting about the Word of God, as much as it can encourage, it still corrects. As encouraged was I, was I to hear about those who aren't counseled in the wicked or standing in the path of sinners Sitting in the seat of scoffers, or as it says in the message, going to smart mouth college, kind of stung a bit for me. It was, it was correctional for me, and it still remains correctional. Actually, it was a little bit sad as I thought through it today, thinking how wounded I was by those words when I first heard them, and recognizing that I was still wounded by them again today, that it's still a struggle of mine. Uh, taking sarcasm, and I'm not opposed to humor and being funny. Uh, I just can't help it. I am funny. 
But when that humor is used to hurt, that's not funny. It's just not funny. And again, I have a a sting to my mouth sometimes. These passages can encourage, but they also can warn us. Blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, sit. In the counsel of the wicked, the path of sinners, the seat of scoffers. But here's what the man of God does do, the, the blessed man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This was encouraging to me. I spend a lot of time in the Bible. I spend a lot of time in God's Word. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. It is surprising to me how many Christians I run across who are concerned that they're not growing in their faith, but they're unwilling to spend any time in God's Word. I honestly, sincerely believe that although, yes, I have the spiritual gift of teaching, one of the key things that leads into that gift working and operating in my life is that I spend the time doing the homework. I spend the time reading God's Word. And so sometimes people will say to me, wow, how did you get that out of that passage? I read it a hundred times this week. You'd be surprised what will jump out at you at time number 97. I imagine if you spent the entire week studying a passage, you'd find some pretty cool stuff too. Man, it's just this delight in the law of the Lord. I'm I'm continually impressed by the things I see in God's Word. And I'll tell you, it's a drudgery for me at times, but it leads to the delight. I find these little things and I'm like, What? Where did that come from? I've read this before. That was never there before. It's just like this moment of like, aha. But I do the work. I go through that habit. I take the time to read through the passage over and over. And it wakes me up in the middle of the night sometimes. I'm sitting there at the kitchen table going, can't even focus my eyes. Like, why have you woken me up, Spirit? And I have to like do one of these with my Bible, trying to get the words to come into focus in the middle of the night. And before you know it, a passage I've read all week and got nothing out of, all of a sudden I'm writing down an outline for my sermon. If I would have known I just had to do it in the middle of the night, I would have started there, right? (laughs) But it all plays together in the Spirit of God and the mind of man It all goes into here and there's this beautiful dance that we don't get to see that happens behind the scenes in our brain and in our spirit where it all begins to mix together and then the Spirit of God brings it out of you. The Word of God coming to life in you. He says, in His law, He meditates day and night. Now that word law there is important in this sense uh, that when the psalmist was writing, that's what he had. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy. That's what he had. We forget that sometimes. I'm glad you guys come on Wednesday night, right? Old Testament. You're the heroes of the faith. (laughs) 
But there's something to that meditating on God's Word. And we as Christians, we don't like the word meditation because we think it's, you know, some uber spiritual thing and it's going to lead demons to inspect our soul. And then next thing you know, we're going to be talking about reincarnated cockroaches. and um, Like we hear the word meditation through all the craziness of the 1970s, right? That's how we hear the word meditation. Uh, but in here... Uh, it's, uh, I heard this great description of meditation. It's the sound that a cow makes when he's chewing on his cud. It's the sound that I make when I'm eating dessert. It's so good. There's... That, that meditation on the word is what brings it to life. Some of us do a quick pass over a passage and we're like, ha I did my reading for the day. I'm done. I'm pleasing in God's eyes. I've accomplished my task. Check. You should do that. That's okay. But don't do just that. There's so much more to be gained when you just take a moment to meditate on the word of God. Uh, when I, in particular, read the Old Testament, I have to really think through the Old Testament because it is easy to kind of get distracted by some of the craziness. I mean, some of the stuff that happens in the Old Testament is straight out of Jerry Springer, right? There's some crazy stuff in there, and you're thinking to yourself, why is that in my Bible? Like, I didn't want to hear about that. I can't unread that. It's just there now. And then I got to teach that someday. Like there's times I want to like put a bag on my head when I'm reading the Bible in front of it. Like, you got kids in here, man. What are you doing? Oh, I got to say these things in front of you. <laughs> so I have to take the time to like, what is the purpose? Why did, the, why did God put this in here? Why am I meditating on this? So let me just give you a quick structure. I have shared this dozens of times I'm going to continue to share it, but there are a handful of passages that I continually go back to when I'm struggling to get anything out of the Old Testament. First passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. It says, these things were written as examples for you, so you won't make the same mistakes that they did. So one of the things you're looking for, if if you're following that logic in the Old Testament, bad examples not to follow. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, my eyes aren't focusing, (laughs) what time is it? 11, examples for our instruction. The same idea, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, there's examples for our instruction in there. What are things that God is telling us to do? So not bad examples to follow, but actual instructions from God. Hebrews 11 is one of my favorite ones to go to. When you can remember that it was the faith of the Old Testament saints that was credited to them as righteousness. As you're reading through the Old Testament, sometimes we look at the actions. Man, God loved David because he slew Goliath. Well, if God loved David because he slew Goliath, he must hate David because he raped Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah. 
See, those things weren't credited to him as righteousness. It was the faith that David experienced and expressed in his life that was the righteousness of God. So we're looking at the faith of the people in the stories. Those people that are following God. That's the example of these Old Testament saints. Uh, Matthew chapter 22 is a good one, verses 37, I think through 40, 41, something like that. Um, But anyway, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two things. So all that Old Testament stuff, all of it hangs on these two concepts. Love God, love others. Put those glasses on and read through the Old Testament sometime. The book of Leviticus begins to make sense. All these things are about loving God and loving others. So you start reading through those rules. You start reading through those regulations. It's a lens through which you can see the word. Luke 24, verse 27, powerful one. Jesus basically says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he took them through the Old Testament And he showed him or showed them himself all throughout the Old Testament. He showed how every bit of the Old Testament was pointing towards him, towards Jesus Christ. It's a little harder. You've got to meditate on a passage sometimes to see how this points us to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's a direct point. It's a prophecy. Sometimes Jesus literally appears in the Old Testament. That's powerful stuff. Sometimes, though, it's a little bit harder to see. You have a type of Jesus Christ. So Moses being a mediator between God and the people of the nation of Israel, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. He wasn't Jesus, but it's a reminder to us that in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is that mediator between God and man. You start to see that connection there, that as The people of Israel saw Moses, God said to Moses, when they see you, it'll be like they're seeing me. And when you speak, it'll be like the word of God to them. That was a picture of Jesus Christ. Some of them are harder than that. You have to kind of look through it as the arc of history. That God is orchestrating the events of the Old Testament, all of these crazy things that you see, these wars and these famines and all of these things to lead us to one person and to one point in history. The cross of Jesus Christ. All of those things were leading up to that and leading into that. We have to remember those things. Another one that's good. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be, and this is the most beautiful word in the Bible to me, adequate, (laughs) equipped for every good work. I may not be great, but I'm adequate. And adequate is, by definition, good enough. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God, the blessed person in this passage, can be adequate. So that God can say, you don't know how much I love you. Man, I am well pleased with you. It's not the only adequate passage in Scripture, by the way. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 is not one of the ones I was thinking of, but it has that same adequacy feeling 
which is what Psalm 1 brought to me. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who's made us adequate servants, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. It's powerful. God has made us adequate servants. Well, this guy here who doesn't walk, stand, sit in the counsel of the wicked, the path of the sinners, the seat of the scoffers, but instead is delighting and meditating on the word of God, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That's the one. That's the blessed person. Uh, we've, we've rearranged some things at our church around these types of concepts. It's one of the reasons when we talk about the discipleship blueprint that we've had uh, for a handful of months going back now, we're trying to bring that out. And then on Sundays, I say something along the lines, or Tom will show a video, read that chapter, right? So I'm going to be teaching on Sunday. I'm going to be teaching 3 John. I want you guys to be meditating on 3 John because as Good as a sermon as I might be able to preach, that sermon is going to be so much more powerful in your life if you've spent a week with that passage yourself. And that's why we give you the, the memory verse, 3 John 2 this week, which, by the way, connects here in whatever he does, he prospers. Same concept in 3 John verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and in be in good health just as your soul prospers. It's the prosperity that comes from the Word in your life. It's not about financial prosperity. It's a prosperity of your soul. So we're trying to reorganize our church around that concept that, that I want you guys in His Word so that when you hear His Word, it's like, wow! Side benefit, you spent a week with it, you're already getting great stuff out of it, and then I say some kind of mediocre stuff, but you already got the great stuff. You're like, man, that's a good preacher. I got so much out of that passage. I didn't say most of that stuff. You got it on your own reading this week. But I love that idea. It's, it's just an illustration. It's just a picture. But you become firmly planted by streams of water, that this is this source for nutrition for you that then allows you to yield fruit at the proper time in its season. It allows you to not wither and it allows you to prosper or have success in the things that God has called you to. Now, on the other hand, and we're going to go through this a little quicker, is the wicked. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked have no foundation. They have no roots. They are like chaff. They are like dust. It says in the um, message, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. <sighs> the wicked. There's no foundation to their life because they don't have the truth of the word of God. And they begin building their life on falsehood and on wickedness. 
And as successful as they may appear in this world, it tells us in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. They have no foundation to stand on in the judgment before God, and they have no place in our heaven. Because they have no root in the truth, in the source of truth in God. That's the wicked. It's interesting, it doesn't go into a definition here of who the wicked are. It just tells you this is their outcome. <sighs> Chaff. Just blown away. They've got no place, no ability to stand in the judgment, and no assembly amongst the righteous. But in contrast, it tells us what we have. If we're not the wicked, if we're the blessed man, if we're the one that God is well pleased with, if we're the one who delights in his law, the contrast would tell us, though, that in the judgment of God, we can stand. It's another one of those pictures I love. I love to talk about what it is Jesus accomplished at the cross. One of those things that it accomplished is we can stand in the judgment of God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, we confess him as Lord. It says that he takes away our sins and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. He buries our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. He takes our sins, it says in scripture, throws them behind his back, tramples them under his feet. It says in the New Testament, that he takes that certificate of debt against us and writes paid in full. And it says this mind-blowing thing, that the all-knowing God remembers our sins no more. In the cross of Jesus Christ, there was this reconciliation with God. And in the judgment, God will not see my unrighteousness, but he will see the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ applied to me. So when he sees me, he sees me as being as righteous as Jesus Christ. I can stand in the judgment. And I have a place in the assembly of the righteous. The summary statement here in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. So the question that should come into my mind or would come into your mind, hopefully, when you read the description of the blessed, does that sound like you? If that sounds like you, you might have had a bad day at work today, but you're blessed. You might be struggling in your prayer life right now, but God's well pleased with you. You might even be having the occasional sin struggles in your life. You might be struggling in God's word sometimes. You're struggling through it and it's just not bringing the life that you want out of it. But you're in a reconciled relationship with God. 
your faith is credited to you as righteousness. And you will one day stand before God and be brought into the assembly of the righteous. Now that's a blessing. If you don't see any of those things in your life, I would be concerned. But here's what I want to say about that. There is a danger of reading into this a performance-based salvation. There's a danger of reading into this and saying, I now have earned my standing before God because I've worked these things out. That's not what this is describing. This is for the one who has already received the gift of salvation they will begin to see in their life the actions of a saved person. Because we're saved by faith apart from works. But saving faith always works. If you have a faith in Jesus Christ, it will always lead you to walk in the good works that He prepared for you in advance. There'll be this change that happens. It's when you recognize that change that you go, oh yeah, not so bad after all. God must like me. I'm adequate. And that's good enough. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Psalm 1. I thank you for your spirit bringing it into my life at the right time. Lord, I pray that it would minister to others. Lord, even as I was preaching tonight, it was ministering to me. I was fretting all day how I was struggling to concentrate and I was struggling to prepare this in the ways that I'm used to doing it and so many other things crowding into my brain, Lord, and praying before service just to give me clarity of mind. Lord, I thank you that you ministered to me through your word tonight. And I pray that wherever Psalm 1 is read, Wherever this sermon is replayed, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to other believers. And that for some, it might just pull them out of the pits of despair. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.